invite you, if you would, to uh, turn with me to John chapter 3. Our task uh, this morning is to give attention to the last section of John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, but um, much of the, uh, the content and the application, I think, is rather obvious, so I think we can, um, we can make our way through it relatively rapidly. But let's, um, let's look at the whole text together, and then we'll, uh, we'll give some attention to it bit by bit. Beginning in verse 22 of John chapter 3, John writes, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness or bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. For he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Well, an interesting text we have before us today. So we will give some attention to it. I know you've probably heard this before, but there was an admirer who once asked the great composer Leonard Bernstein, excuse me, great conductor Leonard Bernstein, what was the hardest instrument to play? Do you remember what his answer to that question was? Yes. He replied without hesitation, second fiddle is the hardest to play. He said, I can always get plenty of first violinists, But to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And if no one plays second, we have no harmony, he said. And what he found to be true in orchestra is true in life, isn't it? Uh, There's not a lot of folks who are anxious to play second fiddle. In fact, from the time that we are born, there's something within us that drives us to want to be uh, at the top, that wants us to be not second fiddle, but which fiddle? First fiddle, right? We want to be number one. When you, when you, uh, when you navigate with school children, you see this pretty, pretty evidently early on, right? You don't have any kids running around school or the athletic field running around saying, we're number two, we're number two, right? And you ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody ever says, I want to be the vice president, right? No jokes, please. Um, no, they want to be who? The president. I want to be number one, not number two. 
You know, this struck me particularly as I was watching some glimpses of the Olympics that just passed. Any of you guys get to see the Winter Olympics? Um, sometimes it, I'd catch the, the end of it in the evenings, late at night, when I was trying to get my son to go to sleep, because uh, somehow the Olympics would put him there, and I enjoyed watching it. But, um, and I, and I'm, I, I could never compete in any of those events, ever, unquestionably, no matter how much I practice. But I'm amazed that people who can do those things, I was watching those snowboard guys, you know, they can go back and forth and jump and flip. I don't know how they don't break every bone in their body just practicing. Um, but it's amazing to me. But, you know, they're all striving for what? They all want the, the gold medal. And, uh, I mean, silver medal's not a bad accomplishment in life, isn't it? I mean, to be second in the, the Olympics, that's a pretty huge accomplishment. But I was amazed at how many times I saw people come in second place, and they were not thrilled or ecstatic to be a silver medalist. They were really dejected and disappointed and discouraged because they weren't what? The gold medalists. They, weren't the, they didn't get first place. They got second. Second's not always bad. I mean, the Olympics, it's a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, but there is something within us that wants to be number one and not number two. Not number two. And this is part of, of the human psyche. And it also re- it, it relates back to this thing that, that's within us called pride. Don't you know that? This thing within us called pride that wants to exalt ourselves, that wants to have attention, that wants to be glorified, that wants to be seen, that wants to be admired, that wants people to look at us and think well of us and and glorify us and praise us. We want that. We want that really badly. And that drive shows up early on. And when you think about this in terms of how the world around us measures success... Um, it's even more prominent. How does the world around us measure success? What are the what are kind of the barometers for success in our world? When you look at uh, television, when you read the newspaper, when you watch movies, when you uh, kind of survey pop culture, how do they e- evaluate people and and determine who is a success? What are the criteria for that? Throw them out at me. I know you know some of these things. Come on, I'll hear you. Money, okay? People who, who, who amass great amounts of wealth are seen as successful and they're held up as examples of success. So, so money, money makes one successful, our world says. What else? Fame, okay? How f- famous. There are, there are people who are seen now, even in our culture, this interesting phenomenon of people who are famous for nothing more than just being famous, right? Have you seen this? They don't really have any skill. They haven't accomplished anything. They haven't done anything. They're just famous for being famous, Think Paris Hilton or somebody like that. They haven't done anything. They're just famous because they're famous, because people are interested for some reason in them. So that's one thing. Fame, money. What else? Oh, I didn't catch that one. Okay, win-loss record. Accomplishment. Okay, what is our accomplishment? Um, you know, what have we accomplished in life? What have we achieved, whether it be on a sports field or whether it be in the, in, in the business world? What has our achievement, our level of achievement been? Have we achieved a lot of things, therefore we're successful if we have? Okay. How about beauty? Is our, oh, I heard something over there. Okay, good luck. Sometimes people are... Good looks. Okay, good looks. That's, okay, that's where I was going. It's like you read my mind or something. Um, beauty. Good looks. Yeah, we look at people and we evaluate and we compare folks to the next and say, well, this one's more beautiful, stands out in the area of beauty. And so that person is, 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 is exalted and held up as successful. And other people look to them and are, oh, I, I want to be like her. I want to be like him so I can be successful. And it's remarkable the things people will do in the area of beauty to try and achieve that kind of success. Um, just about every day when I log on to my Facebook page, you know, they always throw these advertisements up there, and they always, there's some algorithm somewhere that computes what 
Facebook, whatever that is, thinks you would like. And it puts it in front of you um, in order for you, hopefully, to go buy it or like the page or do something else. Inevitably, this happens to me at least once a week, and I still cannot figure it out. I log on to my Facebook and pops up, here, Greg, Greg Smith, you might like Plastic Surgery Center of Charleston. And it happens to me all the time. And I'm thinking, why does Facebook think that I would like the Plastic Surgery Center of Charleston? Is there a, a message being sent somehow in the realm of beauty or lack thereof? But that reminds me the links to which people will go to achieve success in the area of beauty. People will spend gazillions of dollars going to surgeons and actually allowing people to cut them. I hate surgery. I, hate, I had a tooth pulled the other week, uh, extracted with an um, uh, oral surgeon, and, and I hated that. I, I, can't, I did that only because I had no choice, but there are people who willingly go and say, please cut on me and do things because I want to achieve beauty that I don't have naturally. It's remarkable to me to drive that would drive folks to do such things. Now, sometimes that's necessary for other reasons, but much of what's done in that world is just pure vanity. It's just, I'm not as beautiful as I think I ought to be or as beautiful as someone else is, and I want people to regard me as more beautiful than they do, so I have to do something to achieve that. So beauty is a huge area uh, that, our, that our culture uses to, to judge success. Money, power, fame, beauty, all of these things fit. Material wealth, popularity, uh, all of those things are barometers that the, the world around us uses to judge and measure success. And, and in that equation, equation, somehow bigger is always better, right? More money is always better than less. More beauty is always better than less. And, and so everyone wants to get to the top, and they understand what you have to do to get there. And so there's this drive to get more. There's this drive to acquire more money, this drive to acquire more beauty, and to see whatever we can do to, to rise to the top. And at the same time, we're driven to get these things. Once we acquire some of it, we have this additional drive to now maintain what we've already got, right, so that we don't lose it. Um, and beauty is another area where we could, we could delve in on that, but uh, I'll resist that one. But it's true in money and wealth and everything else, popularity as well. People do remarkable things to try and keep those things once they gain them and not lose them. And that's how the world operates. But my question beyond that is really deeper and more interesting, I think, and more of interest to us this morning. And that is, how does a church measure success? How does a church measure a minister's success? How does a church measure its own ministry success or the success of any other that's out there in the world? And I would suspect, or I would presume to answer you the question that really the world measures the same way the church does. The church measures the same way as the world anymore. That's the case, isn't it? What do you think about it? I mean, what, which, which ministries are held up as, as successful in our culture? The ones that, well, it, it comes back to the same thing. The ones that have the most people, the ones that generate the most money, the ones that are the most popular in the media, and on and on and on. It's the same criteria, the same criteria that the world uses to judge success. That typically, even within the church culture, it's been so, we've been so infiltrated and so consumed and permeated with this idea of success in our culture and pride that we evaluate things just the way the world does. And that's the way it goes, and that's the way it is. And the drives are still the same even within the Christian world as they are out there outside. And, um, and it ought not be so. We're going to be confronted in this area this morning when we look at our text. Because John the Apostle is going to revisit a character that he has visited previously already as we've studied John's Gospel. It's a different John. John the Baptist. 
Um, we talked about him several months ago, this, this, this uh, remarkable, remarkable man, this, this man that Jesus called to that point in, in, in uh, history the greatest man who ever lived, he, greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than all the prophets, Jesus said this man John the Baptist was. And we looked pretty closely at him uh, a chapter or so ago, and we got this picture of this man, John the Baptist, this kind of eccentric preacher who kind of came out of 30 years of... of of, of obscurity, and he rose onto the scene with this ministry that was prominent, and he grew and he drew incredible crowds out to the river where he was baptizing, and he was preaching repentance, and and we we got a good glimpse of what his ministry was. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one who had been prophesied in the Old Testament as the one who would come before the Messiah and prepare the way for him, prepare the people's hearts for him. And this was John the Baptist, and this was his ministry, and he rose to the. To the, to the surface, and, um, and he, he totally upset all of the religion of his day, and he drew great cr- crowds. He was a remarkably popular preacher in his day, and he attracted great crowds of people, and he was a great preacher, and he had tremendous success in his ministry. But this morning, we're going to be reminded by John the Apostle exactly what it was primarily that made this man, John the Baptist, great. What it was that made him the greatest man who, who had lived up to that point. What it was that made him greater than all those other great patriarchs of the faith and other remarkable figures of the Old Testament. We're going to be reminded what that one characteristic was. There were other things, but this one thing stands out, and we see it so clearly in this text today. He was very popular, John was, very, very popular. But his popularity is not what made him great. Absolutely not what made him great. He drew large crowds, and it was not the large crowds, though, that qualified this man as great. He was a powerful speaker, unlike any that had come along in quite some time. Powerful preacher. But the powerful preaching was not what made this man great. He drew large crowds, but that wasn't what made him great. You know what made him great? He was willing to let the crowds go. That's what made him great. He was a person who was a powerful speaker, but his greatness was seen not in, in, in continuing to, to, um, uh, to promote himself as a powerful speaker, but being willing to simply fade into the background when Christ comes onto the scene. It was, not, it was not the upfront things that the world would judge as success that made this man successful. John the Apostle is going to tell us that what made this man great, what made him a success in God's eyes, was his willingness to fade into the background and become obscure again. That's what made him great. It wasn't his pride. It wasn't his skill. It wasn't his, his public ministry. It was his humility that made him a great man. A humility that made him remarkable. Remarkable. And I'm going to tell you, this man stands in stark contrast to what we see in the world of ministry these days. And I don't want to dwell too hard on this point, but I simply want to say that the landscape of Christian ministry in our day and our time is marked by a, a remarkable uh, uh, phenomena of celebrity. Uh, what's, what's, what's popular, what's in vogue is the celebrity preacher. The celebrity preacher whose face can be everywhere. The celebrity preacher who can exalt himself in his ministry and market himself all over the place and draw thousands of people to hear him speak and, and sell gazillions of books to anybody who will buy them. And that movement, you see it all across the landscape. It's not, a, it's not contained in any particular denomination or any particular movement. It crosses all boundaries and it's, all, and it's out there and it's consistently exalted in the Christian world, the success 
but it's a movement that is absolutely marked by pure narcissism, by self-absorption, by self-exaltation, a, a sort of a militant sort of a view of leadership where people are demanded to, to remain loyal to their ministry and absolute allegiance is demanded. And, 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 the, whole, and the whole thrust and the whole gear is, is, is aimed toward generating numbers and maintaining them. That's what we see. It's not just the evangelical world. If you watched just a, I don't know if it was a year or two ago, when, when there was a, a new pope crowned in, in, uh, in Rome. Did you see this? When Pope Francis was, was brought to the helm of the Roman Catholic Church. Did any of you see any of that on television? Any of the, the, the ceremony involved? And you look at the pomp, and you look at the clothing, and you look at the ceremony, and you look at the exalting of a, of a man. I mean, it, it, just, it just oozes with... It just oozes with celebrity and it oozes with pride and it oozes with self-glorification and the exaltation of a human being to a place that a human being should never be exalted to. And so this is all across the spectrum and there is remarkable lack of discernment among the average everyday Christian as to what success is in ministry. They look at these things and say, wow, that's, that's success. And there's remarkable, listen, I know a lot of pastors, there's remarkable lack of discernment among pastors in this area. Because I know so many, so many that just want to, they, want to they, they, they exalt one of these celebrities and they just, their whole thrust of their ministry is, let's be like that guy. I want to be like that guy. I want people to look to me. I want them to buy my books. I want thousands to come hear me speak. And there's a drive to, and you know, and it's, and it's alluring. It is alluring. It is a temptation that Satan brings into the life of ministers in a way that it's hard to, to grasp unless you're on the receiving end of that. And I get it. I understand it. Uh, but it's not limited, that thing, to just pastors and ministers. The same is true of teachers in a local church, of singers who sing in the small little country church. It's, 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 it's anywhere someone ministers for Christ, there's the temptation towards pride and a very real struggle to maintain humility. Do you see that in your life, wherever you might find yourself? It's true. It's a problem for people in ministries of all shapes and sizes. The Bible study teacher who used to, um, used to be the best in the church until somebody else moves in and other people start going to that class. Or the, the singer who, who's the best singer in the church until a new family moves in and now there's a singer and guess what? They're a better singer. And everybody knows that. How do you respond when those moments happen? Pride, humility, they're in the mix. Now, the Bible lays this stuff out for us pretty clearly. It, it lays out for us the reality of pride and what a, what a subversive sort of a sin it is, what a, what a dreadful sort of a sin it is in our lives. And it talks about this all over the place. It's, it's pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven. It's really a temptation to pride that caused Adam and Eve to, to sin in the garden. You know, you can be like God. You don't have to be second. You can be on top. And, oh, let me eat. It's pride. The Bible says things like this in Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there's wisdom. Or in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, the Bible warns us about this. It warns us that these things are dangerous. That they don't exalt, but they actually destroy. That pride doesn't actually, it doesn't actually make good on its promise to exalt you. What it actually does is it gets you to buy into its system and then it destroys you. That's what it does. The Bible warns us of that. And on the flip side of that, the Bible tells us that the humility is a fruit of the Spirit. That the mark of a genuine believer is humility. That the mark of a genuine minister for Christ on any level is humility, not pride. It is, in fact, evidence of spiritual maturity. And we see that all over the place, too. 
Proverbs 15.3. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. And humility comes before what? Before honor. It's said different ways in the New Testament. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to whom? To the humble. And therefore, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, and at the proper time, He will what? Exalt you. So there's this, there's this paradox that the way to be exalted is to go down. The way to, to, be, to be lifted up is to humble yourself downward and allow God to be the one to exalt in whatever way He sees fit. But that's absolutely backwards to the way we tend to operate. And we're going to see this so clearly in this text today. I, I'm just amazed. I, I have never... Uh, I, I don't think until studying this passage we have never had the appreciation that I should have for John the Baptist in his ministry. I hope, I hope you'll see that as we work our way through the text. John the Apostle gives us the setting in verses 22 through 24 so we can see this thing play out. He says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. And John was also baptizing uh, at this location near Salim. And he was doing it there because water was plentiful and people were coming to be baptized because he had not yet been put into prison. This is the setting John the Apostle wants to give us for what he's about to tell us. And there are a couple important things that we should note in there. Um, Jesus had been in Jerusalem. That's where he, he, he turned everything upside down in the temple. Remember we talked about that? And he also had this encounter with Nicodemus that we had just finished talking. So Jesus moves from the city out to the countryside and he takes his ministry out there. He wants to get out of the hustle and bustle, get some time away with his disciples, begin to invest in those men, and he continues to preach. And he continues to preach out there. And it tells us he remained with them and he was baptizing. So um, he's spending time investing in his disciples. And part of their ministry was what kind of a ministry? Well, they were dunking people in water. What is that? Baptism. It was a baptism ministry. They were baptizing people. Um, so, so Jesus was preaching and the disciples were baptizing. And, and that's what Jesus was doing during this time. Now, it says after this, John the Apostle doesn't tell us how long after this. It could have been up to six months. But it seems likely that Jesus spent some time doing ministry after the encounter with Nicodemus. So we don't know how long, but however long it was, he was out there preaching and baptizing. And that's what's going on. Now, what kind of ministry did John also have? A ministry of preaching and baptizing. Okay, so Jesus is essentially for this period of time engaging in the same kind of ministry that John had been engaging in for some time. And so we had this little season where John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry overlap. And they're both operating at the same time, doing essentially the same kind of thing. And Jesus' baptism at this time was the same kind of baptism that John was baptizing. It was a baptism of repentance, a baptism in general of cleansing the heart and preparing the way for the emerging of the Messiah, who would ultimately give his life on the cross uh, for their sins. And so Jesus is doing this kind of thing. Now, you need to note something here in John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He tells us something here. He says, Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, uh, heard that Jesus was making, and, um, excuse me, let me start over. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and here's the note you need to hear. Although Jesus, what? Himself did not baptize, okay? But who? Only his disciples. Okay, so this helps us back in chapter 3. It wasn't Jesus himself baptizing, but Jesus was preaching, and he had the disciples doing the baptizing for him, is what's going on in the ministry, okay? That's an important note so that we don't think there's some sort of a contradiction here. And so John is baptizing in the same, in the same general vicinity. They're separated by some distance, but close enough that word could travel. 
And so here's the forerunner finishing up his ministry as the Messiah comes onto the scene and there's this overlap. And he gives us an interesting note. He says, John is not yet put into prison. Now, why would he tell us John isn't put into prison? It seems obvious if he's preaching and baptizing, he's not in prison. Did you wonder that when you read it? You didn't. Now you're wondering it. Okay, so I'll tell you. Um, Because, it's an important note, because if you read the the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, these were written much earlier, 30 to 35 years earlier than the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. So they've been circulating now for some 30 to 35 years. People have been reading them. If you read the synoptics and you follow the flow of history, particularly regarding the ministry of John the Baptist, it seems like they present John the Baptist... um, uh, pretty quickly being, uh, after the baptism of, in, of Jesus, being quickly put into prison and not much happening in between. An example would be Matthew 4, verse 11 and following. Uh, it speaks of the end of the temptation of Jesus. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So John baptizes Jesus, and the next thing you hear about John, he's arrested. And we don't have any information of, of in between. So it seems like it happened right on the heels of one another. And so that would have been the impression the average guy would have had reading just the synoptics. So John, the apostle, in writing the fourth gospel here, is wanting to make clear what I'm about to tell you is happening in between, after he baptized Jesus, but before he got arrested. There's more stuff that Matthew, Mark, and Luke haven't told you about, and I'm wanting you to know that. So that's why he gives us this note here um, that, that this happened before John was in prison. John wasn't in prison yet. And you know, this is the thing. This is what's remarkable. Jesus comes onto the scene, John fades off of the scene, and almost instantly, I mean, after this encounter that we read about this morning in John chapter 3, John is arrested, he's put in prison, and his head is chopped off, and that's all for John the Baptist. That's it. Uh, That's how the man's ministry ends. But we're not there yet. Here we are in this in-between time. And and so these two ministries are overlapping and a problem arises. And here's the problem, verse 25 and 26. Here's the problem. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Or you could read that word purification as over baptism. Okay? So there's a conflict. And they came to John saying to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Oh, so... So here's what John tells us. A conflict breaks out. Who's the conflict between? Well, initially, it's between some of John's disciples and some unnamed Jewish person, right? And it's some sort of a conflict over baptism. He doesn't tell us the content of that conflict. He just says there's a conflict. They're arguing about something related to baptism. Very likely, this Jew is saying, hey, what's the deal with you guys? Uh, You're following John, and he's baptizing. But what about this guy, Jesus? He's baptizing, too. And he's drawing some pretty big crowds. How do you think John's disciples... Our followers reacted to that kind of a conversation. Well, they disputed with this man, no light, no doubt. And they couldn't win the dispute, so they go to John, the Baptist, and they want him to come to their aid. They want him to resolve it. So what is their problem? What is their real problem? What is their real problem? You tell me. They are jealous. They are filled to overflowing with envy. Because they've been following John the Baptist all this time. And they've idolized him. And they've been a part of this incredibly uh, powerful ministry of his. And now somebody else is on the scene. And his, and, and, and his son is, is beginning to rise. And he's beginning to eclipse John in popularity. And they are, they're, they're angry. They're, they're filled with envy. They're filled with jealousy. They're, they're, in fact, filled with rage. And they're filled with fear, too. And so they come running to John after this conversation. And they are so ticked um, that they say, John, John. They say, Rabbi, 
here, but John, I mean, you know, you can see him just kind of all being all worked up. He who was with you across the Jordan, you know, that guy you, you bore witness to. What do you notice about that? Do you think they didn't know his name? His name is Jesus. It was clear. Everybody knew that. And if you didn't want to call him Jesus, you could call him what John called him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he said, hey, that guy, that guy that you bore witness to, you remember that guy. We're so filled with disdain, we don't even want to mention his name. That guy who was with you. John, the crowds are leaving us, and they're going to him. The people are, are beginning to trickle away. And you know, and if this, this thing keeps up, he's going to become more popular than you. And if we don't watch out, this ministry is going to come crashing down, and everybody's going to be going to Jesus, and nobody's going to be coming out here to listen to, you, to us. We're losing our crowd. We're losing our influence. We're losing our, we're losing our status, John. Don't you see it? We've got competition, and the competition is winning, it looks like. You see, before this, we, John, we, we had a monopoly on this ministry, this preaching and baptizing ministry. We had the monopoly, but now there's somebody else. And, and, and they use this as sort of an exaggeration. They say, look, John, this guy, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, all are not going to him. John is still drawing crowds, and he's still preaching, and he's still baptizing people. But what are these guys saying? And using that sort of an exaggeration. John, if we don't do something quick before long, they are all going to be over there. And nobody's going to be coming out here to, to us anymore. They are gripped with jealousy because another ministry is eclipsing theirs. And they are worked up about it. You know what? Every one of us in this room knows the power of pride. And we have been these guys before, right? We have been these guys. You can look at your own life, and I guarantee you can think of a time when you have been these guys. It's easy for us to be hard on them reading the story. Don't you know, dummies, that Jesus should eclipse John? Hello. But no, they didn't see it. They didn't see it any more than we see it when it's our lives and somebody's eclipsing us and we're filled with, with rage or anger or, if nothing else, jealousy and envy and pride because we don't like that someone else is getting the attention that we wish we had or think that we deserve. That's what's going on in the hearts of these guys. Somebody outshines us at work, and, and, and the same sort of thing happens in our hearts. Somebody else gets the accolades that we wish we had, and the same kind of response begins to, begins to brew inside of us that was brewing inside of these guys. Now, in our world today, what, what would the natural response be to such a report? You're the pastor who gets this report from your followers. In today's world, you're being eclipsed, man. Somebody else is rising, and you're setting... What's the, what is the natural result or the natural response supposed to be? We can't have that, right? We can't have that. We've got to do something here. We've got to get some balls rolling. We've got we to reinvent ourselves here pretty quickly. We, we can't have somebody else being on the cutting edge. We've got to reimagine ourselves, and we've got to come up with something new. We've got to come up with some new strategy or some, some new way of going about things so that, so that we can make sure that we can hold on to our crowd and not lose them to that guy so that we can regain the edge be more outrageous. We've got to one-up them. And that kind of stuff goes on all the time. And that's what we would expect. That's the natural response. But John isn't natural. John the Baptist isn't natural. He's great. And great men don't respond like that. And John responds to these guys, and it's remarkable what he says. And he begins, and his response really has two sides to it. He points out to these guys very clearly his own personal inferiority and then secondarily, Jesus' own superiority. That's really how you could categorize this thing. John starts out by saying, listen, you boys need to understand real quick, I am inferior to him. And secondly, he is superior to me. 
you need to understand these things clearly. Because, because from John's perspective, these things are not unclear. He understands them. He understands them. And it should have been obvious to his followers because John had been saying all along things like, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. It's not me. He's coming after me. I'm just the guy in the forefront. I'm just the one preparing the way. I'm not him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not me. But these guys had a blind loyalty to him, and they just did not see it. In the first part of John's response, we get a very clear picture of the humility of this man. And it should be the kind of humility that marks every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It should be. And I trust that uh, as I lay these out for you in these next few minutes, that you will be as convicted about them as I am. That you'll find ways in your own life where, where these things are not there. And together we can pray for God's help in, in humbling us, destroying our pride. I'm going to lay it out here as kind of some characteristics of what humble servants are. And we see this. And it's such a stark contrast to what's in vogue today. We see the first one, this first characteristic of what a humble servant is in verse 27. John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. That's, a, that's a, Why does John say that? A person can't even receive one thing unless it's given. From heaven means, you could say, from God. Good Jews didn't pronounce the name of God often, so they would sometimes substitute this phrase from heaven or heaven in place of his proper name. So what John is saying is this. Look, any person, a person, cannot receive even one thing unless what happens? God gives it to him. And that gives us the first characteristic of a humble servant. A humble servant understands that God alone is sovereign over power and position. That's it. John knows this right out of the chute, and he lays it right out there. He says, guys, you need to understand something. Power and position are not mine to gain or to lose. God is eternally sovereign over all these things. He has the right to exalt who he wants to exalt and to bring down who he wants to bring down. I don't have anything at all. I have nothing except what God has given me. If we've been popular, it's only been because God has made us popular and he has sovereignly exalted us. And if God chooses to, to bring us down a level, then he has the right to do that. And I'm not concerned about it. God has the right to do these things. It's not in my control to build myself up. If there's been any building up, it's only because God built. That's it. And humble servants understand that. But God's sovereign over these things. The first response of John is to appeal to God sovereignly. Apart from God, I'm nobody, he says. The only reason I have any ministry is because God's given it to me. And the God who's given it to me reserves the right to end it at any time. He reserves that right. And, John's, and, and you, you can hear as John is saying this, almost through the text, you can hear him saying, and that's okay with me. That's all right if God chooses to do that. He's sovereign and he has the right. And I defer to him if he chooses to do so. Everything belongs to God. You know, that's the truth. The Bible lays that out. The earth is the Lord and every, the Lord's and everything it contains. The world and all that's in it. Everything belongs to the Lord. If it... If you and I have anything good, it's because the Lord has given it to us. If you and I have any good gift from Him, is it, doesn't the New Testament make that clear? If we have anything, it's because the Lord's given it to us. If you have any gift that other people admire in you, it's not because it's yours, it's because God gave it to you. Do you see that part? If you're a skilled teacher somewhere and other people look to you as a skilled teacher, you know what? You have that gift and people look to you that way simply because God has given you that. He's given it to you as a gift. If you're a singer and you're, and you're skilled in that area and other people look to you and, and, and say, wow, what a great singer you are. You have that, not because you're a remarkable person, but because God has sovereignly given you that. 
If you're particularly skilled in your workplace and you do your job well and other people look to you in regards to that, you know why, you're, why, why, why have you achieved that? Because God has gifted you in such a way. Never forget that. When we begin to lose sight of that and begin to think, wow, people look to me because of something in me, because of something I'm doing, because of something I'm accomplishing, because of something I'm achieved, or because they're my gifts or my skills or my abilities, we, we begin to move into a category that's extremely dangerous. And pride has room to, to destroy us. But John the Baptist has absolutely nothing to do with an overinflated ego regarding himself or his gifts. He doesn't attribute the crowds that, that have been coming to his own giftedness. He says, look, the only reason I have anything is because God gave it to me. And he can take it away anytime. You know, that is what a humble servant, that's how they operate. That's how they operate. And it's not just show, it's real. When you're around them, you understand that and you know that. They don't even have to tell you that. You see it. You understand it. Charles Spurgeon is perhaps the greatest preacher who has been around in the history of the world, but he was certainly in his day was the greatest preacher. And he drew remarkable crowds uh, to come hear him speak at the New Park uh, Street Chapel. Overflowing crowds every week from the age of 27 really to the end of his ministry. Thousands of people flocked to hear this man speak. Standing room crowds only. Thousands upon thousands of people. Eventually the Metropolitan Tabernacle had to be built. 5,000 seats to hold the crowds. And sometimes it still didn't hold the crowds. He was a man who, like John the Baptist, drew crowds. And was remarkably gifted. Remarkably gifted. Remarkably. A gentleman by the name of Thelic, who wrote, studied Spurgeon's preaching and teaching in his writings, wrote a book called Encounter with Spurgeon. And in regards to how Spurgeon viewed himself, he wrote this. In regard to this area we're talking about, he said this. Success exposes a man to the pressure of people. And thus tempts him to hold on to his gains by means of fleshly methods and practices. And to let himself be ruled wholly by the dictatorial demands of an incessant expansion. Success can go to my head. And will, unless I remember, what? That it's God who accomplished the work. That he can continue to do so without my help. And that he will be able to make out with other means whenever he cuts me down to size. It's exactly how Spurgeon saw himself. It is. He understood. He understood. Look, I, I, I am what I am because God has exalted me and God can do what he's doing through me with somebody else anytime. And when God chooses to cut me down to size, he'll make do just fine. The kingdom of God will go on when I'm gone. It's not dependent upon me. See, that's a humble servant who understands the sovereignty of God in raising and bringing down people. And that's really the first characteristic, isn't it? And is your, mark, is your life marked by that? Is this something that's on, on your mind, that whatever it is you've accomplished in your life, it's by God's grace and it's by God's gifting, and He alone deserves the glory? Are you okay if... Here's a better, maybe a different way to ask it. Are you okay if God removes some of what He's given you? If He allows somebody else to eclipse you? Humble servants are okay with that. Listen to the second thing. Humble servants also understand their role and they find joy in it. They understand their role and they find joy in it. That is to say, they know what their job is. And, they're, and they're, they're joyful in that job. They're not always wishing that they were somebody else. Or wishing they had somebody else's role or somebody else's job. Envious of something or someone else. They understand who they are. They understand what God's called them to. And they're, they're joyful in that. They're happy with that. They're content with that. We see this with John the Baptist. Verse 28. Listen, he says, You, you yourselves bear witness with me that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now 
complete. That's interesting. John understood, hey, I'm the forerunner. I'm not the Messiah. And I'm good with that. I'm happy with the role God's called me to. I'm, I'm content with that. And I'm filled with joy that God has called me to this. And I'm filled with joy that the Messiah has now come. And my ministry's coming to an end. He was fine with that. He understood clearly. He wasn't trying to be anything other than what he was. He wasn't worried about holding on to his power or his popularity. He gladly deferred to Christ. Verse 29 is remarkable. He gives this illustration of the bride and the bridegroom. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. What, what is all this about? What's this friend of the bridegroom? Well, John, he's using this illustration from marriage. And in and, and his culture, the friend of the bridegroom was kind of equivalent to a best man today. How many of you got married? Any of you? Some of you got married? Okay. Um, you had a, how many of you had a best man? Okay, so you understand this analogy. How many of you have seen a wedding? Okay. All right. That includes, Okay, thank you. Um, you understand what a best man is. It's the best friend of the bride who stands in his honor, you know, with him there on the big day. In John's culture, um, be, the, the friend of the bridegroom or the best man had a much more important role than the you know, best man. The best man today pretty much just stand there and don't mess things up, you know, give him the ring and that's about it. Um, you know, maybe do a speech at the, at the rehearsal or something. Or the reception. Um, but the friend of the bridegroom had a big deal. You know, we, we studied the uh, wedding at Canaan. And we talked about weddings. You know, it could be a week-long celebration. There was all this stuff that went into a wedding that had to be done. Uh, the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the groom, was, was responsible for orchestrating all of that. He was responsible for organizing and orchestrating all of the events and managing all of the stuff that led up to this celebration and, and managing, his, managing the whole thing as it went along. He presided over the wedding. He helped the, the groom prepare his home for the future wife. Do you remember they prepared the home and then they would go get the bride and bring her to the new home? And that's when uh, the wedding ceremony would happen and the celebration would begin. And, um, and, and, and it was the friend of the groom uh, who actually went to go get the bride and escorted her to her new home and brought her there. And he, would, he was responsible for guarding the room until the groom got there. Why would he need to do that? Well, this culture is like ours. You don't want any other guys sneaking in there, right? Make sure that that room is secure until the groom gets there. That's your job. You make sure the bride is safe and secure. And nobody's uh, messing around with her until, until he gets there. And it's this beautiful illustration that John lays out for us. He says to his, these disciples who are all worked up, Listen, guys, I'm not the groom. I am not the, I'm, just the, I'm just the best man. I, I'm, the, I'm the guy who's standing alongside the groom. I'm happy for the groom. I'm not him. I'm happy for him. My job is just to get everything ready and to, and to stand post until he arrives. And when he arrives, I step aside joyfully and let him in to his bride. My job is just to get everything ready. And when the, when the groom shows up, I'm happy for him. He's my friend. I care about him. I'm, I'm filled with joy over what's about to happen in his life. I'm not jealous. I'm not envious. I'm joyful. I'm joyful that I've got to be a part of this whole thing in his life. Isn't that remarkable in its humility when you think of the popularity that John had? And he understands that his ministry is coming to an end. He understands that very soon he's not going to be popular anymore. He understands all that. And instead of being envious and jealous, he says, I'm joyful. I'm happy. I, I rejoice greatly. I've been preparing the bride all along. That's been my job. I've been the forerunner to get the bride ready for the marriage. And now the groom is here, and he's here, and it's all about to happen. And I can step aside and joyfully be a part of this whole celebration and as a man who is a humble servant he understands his role and he finds joy in it absolute joy and absolute contentment in who he was i'm just content to be the best man i'm not wishing i was him 
I'm filled with joy to be who God's called me to be. You know, there's something to be said for finding joy and contentment wherever you are. Isn't there? There's something to be said for finding joy and contentment wherever God has placed you. You know, so many of us spend so much of our life wishing we were somewhere else. Wishing we were somebody else. Wishing we had another job. Wishing we had another spouse. Wishing we had something else that we don't have. Seeing nothing but problems with whatever it is God has supplied us graciously with today and wishing we had or were something else or someone else. And John teaches us here, the humble servants don't live like that. They don't look at their lives that way. They realize that I am where I am because God has placed me here. And my response should be pure joy and contentment. God, thank you for where I am. Thank you for what you've given me. I'm content here. If you, if you should choose to exalt me to some other place, then fine. If you should choose to leave me here until the day I die, I'm okay with that too. I'll serve joyfully and contentedly right here. Right here. John understood that because he was a humble servant. He understood that role. Charles Swindoll, uh, Chuck Swindoll, as you may know him, talked about the responsibility of John's ministry. He was a forerunner. He had three jobs, to clear the way, to prepare the way, and to get out of the way. That's what he says. I like the way he said that. And John had no problem with the third part. That was the point. He had no problem with that third part. I'll get out of the way fine. I'm happy with that. Let me give you another characteristic. Humble servants find joy in the success of others. They find joy in the success of others. And it's that same passage. He says, look, I'm the bridegroom's friend, and I rejoice greatly that he's rising and I'm setting. And, you know, I don't need to say too much about this, but you know what? Pride, Pride becomes very evident in our lives when somebody else begins to be successful around us, particularly with a kind of success that we wish we had, right? It's not hard to spot, is it? Somebody else gets the promotion that you were wanting at work, and you look at the big picture, you say, boy, I deserve that. Why did he get that? Or why did she get that? That should have been mine. And very quickly, very quickly, envy and jealousy comes up. And even animosity toward that person, right? Even animosity toward them. I'm not happy with them. I'm not happy that she got it or he got it because I wanted it. And instead of being joyful at their success, I'm envious and I'm jealous and I'm angry at their success. And in some cases, we even try and undercut that success just to prove that we should have got it. I mean, that's just an illustration from work, but you understand that illustration, right? You understand the point. That's a good way. It's a good diagnostic, a good diagnostic in your life in this area of pride or humility. Can I, can I truthfully be joyful when somebody else is exalted and I'm overlooked? Can I truthfully be joyful? Can I, can I really rejoice at somebody else's success, even if it's the kind of success that I wish I had and don't, even if they got it at my expense? Humble servants find joy in the success of others. John was joyful that Jesus was rising and successful. And he didn't in the least bit feel slighted by that. Well, let's move on. Uh, Another characteristic. Humble servants are not power hungry or marked by jealousy. This should be so obvious, right? Humble servants are not power hungry. They're not marked by jealousy. John says, look, he must increase and I must what? Decrease. It's probably the Some of the best words that have ever come out of a human mouth are that simple statement. He must increase and I must decrease. That's it. It's it's supposed to be this way. Christ is everything and I'm nothing. On, On the level of ministry, his ministry needs to rise and my ministry needs to go away. On the level of my heart, I need to stop caring so much about me and exalt Christ. 
And it's on the public side and on the private side. This is a double whammy here, John is saying. On the public side, the ministry is one thing, but inside my heart, I need to not be so, so big in my own eyes. I need to decrease in my own eyes, and Christ needs to increase in my life. That's the only way humility begins to happen, by the way, is for us to become less important in our own eyes and Christ to become more important in our own eyes. And the more important Christ becomes, and then the corollary tends to take place, the less important I am. And humility begins to bloom. Well, I'll give you another one. A last one. It's a humble servant's great joy to exalt Jesus. It's a humble servant's great joy to exalt Jesus. And we could just say, and not themselves. You come across somebody who wants to tell you all about what they've accomplished and how wonderful they are in their ministry, and you need to stay away from that person like the plague. Stay away from them. You don't want any part of that. Because pride comes before destruction. You don't want to get hit with a shrapnel. No, but you, you find somebody who's humble in heart and says, you know what, I'm really not that important, but what you need to know is Jesus. He's important. You don't need to know about who I am. You just need to know who Jesus is. He's the one. He's the one that matters, not me. I'm, I'm, I'm on the decrease. He's on the increase. I love to exalt Jesus. There was a Presbyterian pastor in Melbourne, Australia, who was introducing Hudson Taylor, the great missionary. And in his introduction, he was using all these superlatives, especially the word great in regard to Taylor. When he stepped up in the pulpit, his first words out of his mouth were, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. He didn't want any part of being called great. He wanted people to understand the right place where he belonged. I'm just the little guy. He's really big. I don't matter, he does. Just before his death, William Carey was laying dying, another great missionary of the faith. And he turned to a friend, it's recorded, and said this, When I'm gone... Don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone be magnified. That's how a humble servant dies. One who was remarkable in his level of accomplishment for the kingdom of God. He dies saying, you know what? In the big picture, I don't matter. And I really am not the one you need to talk about. You need to talk about Jesus. He's the one that matters. And John sums that up. In his last statement at the bottom of this passage where he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and who doesn't, doesn't see life. At the end of the day, it's, it, it's what we do with Jesus that determines eternal life or death, not Jesus' servant. And John understood that. It's not what people do with me. It's what they do with Jesus that matters. So he's to be exalted and I'm to be diminished. That's what it looks like to be a humble servant. So the question that then flips back around and points at you and points back at me is this. Are we humble servants? Are those the kind of things that mark our lives? Are we marked by this, this ability to find joy in the success of other people? Are we, are we marked by this idea um, or, or this characteristic of contentment and joy where God has placed us and not this constant lust for something else or someone else? Is it our joy to, to magnify Jesus in our lives? Is it, do we have this clear understanding that God has given us everything? And if I'm anything, it's because He's made me something and He deserves the glory, not me. That's what humble servants look like. And I trust and pray that's what God's making you and making me into. But if you and I look this morning at our lives real closely, I bet we'll find those little roots of pride that get down deep in our hearts and our souls. You know it. You, you feel it when you're eclipsed by someone else. 
And I don't know how big of an issue this is in your life at the present moment or how small of an issue it is, but it's an issue of some sort, I'm sure. I trust that the Holy Spirit will make it clear to you. But right now I want to ask you if you would just pray. And our prayer together is going to be that God would reveal to us the roots of pride in our life. That He would reveal to us a lack of humility where, it, where we find it in our lives. I pray that He would um, even be using the people around us in our families, in our church family, to help, uh, to help us see it. So let's pray in that direction as we wrap this up. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we're grateful for this reminder this morning. We're grateful for this testimony of John the Baptist and his remarkable, remarkable ability to manage, to maintain a humble spirit, to, to fight off pride. Somebody who truly was remarkable in his gifts and his talents and his skills and his ability to serve you well. One who took to the task that you called him to and did it with excellence. One who drew great crowds. He stands before us this morning as a model of greatness, not because of any of those things, but simply because of his faithfulness and his humility. His ability to exalt you and not himself. His ability to be content and joyful in who you made him to be. His ability to to be willing to release all of the accolades and defer to you. Lord, we... If we're honest about it in our own hearts, we lack those things often. We lack them. We, we live out pride more often than we would like to admit to anybody. And even when we don't act it out or say it or do it so other people can see it, we think it in our, in our minds, we feel it in our hearts, and often we, we quietly see it in ways that nobody else knows. But you know. You know these things. You see them in us when nobody else sees them. And only you can root them out. So God, I pray for myself, for my friends who are here today, that you just shine the searchlight of your, of your truth into our hearts and reveal things to us this morning. And that when we see them, we would be drawn to confess them before you and find forgiveness and find your help in doing battle in that area. And so we pray for that this morning. Reveal our pride. Do battle for us and with us in that area. Make us humble servants that we might be great in your eyes, even if the world thinks we're fools. And Lord, for that man or that woman who's here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the one to whom John pointed, the one who is everything, your son who died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, I pray that they'd be drawn to him today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.